know, we can actually start. Now yes. we're back for real. Hi. Hello. We really are here. This is John in here. This is Zach in LA. It's We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about sculpting little imaginary surfaces on a minute scale. And today we're talking with Ted Minio about. And it just like let me access the perversions in a different way. Where are you from, Ted? I'm from uh, New Orleans. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it, was, it was good. It was, gosh, I don't know where to start. I had to break it down into a lot of different categories, right? Like the schools where I lived and my friends and things. Well, how about where you lived? Oh, I ended up spending a lot of my youth in the suburbs of New Orleans, um, across the river from the city itself. You know, it was the usual kind of like strip mall, urban sprawl existence. My parents wanted me to go to Catholic schools and so I went to a uh, to a Catholic elementary school and then an all-boys Catholic high school that was run by the Jesuits. Oh. Did they want you to go there for the religion or for the discipline? Probably a little bit of both and then just like people in the suburbs had a fear of the public schools and I think that was also part of the equation. Sure. Um, I went to Catholic schools too because my public schools were crappy. I went to public school because I think even at a very young age, I was like, no fucking way. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a while to get to that point. But anyway, enough about me. New Orleans. So did you get into the city? Was the the life of the city proper part of your life growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it started to be that way when I was in high school and my friends had cars and things. I never ended up learning how to drive, really. You know, we had like little bands and stuff. And it was through music, like starting little high school bands and playing the drums in in those bands that I got to meet the girlfriends of my bandmates, you know, because I went to an all-boys school. I didn't know hardly any women or girls. And they, of course, were artists and were were like, oh, you should come look at my art. And then I think that's how I ended up going to art school, really, is because one friend of mine, uh, this girl, Rayma Hoffpower, she got me to go to like the local arts. There's like New Orleans has something called the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. It's like one of these, there's kind of high schools where you can go the second half of your day to to study art. And so I did that and was like able to go to school, leave my the Jesuit school where we had to wear like head to toe dickies and uniforms and military shoes and name tags and things. And it was then I was able to go to the second half of my day to with a bunch of kids making art and like actually that that was life-changing and really exciting and so I think then I was like I have to do something like this because I didn't really there wasn't anything else that was jumping out at me as a way to like live my life before that <laughs> right you like you found something yeah yeah I, like I had a series of assumptions about things that would happen to me I was like I'll probably end up having to like be a priest or it just seemed like one of these things that like you're subtly being pushed into your whole life. Not that my family was like, you know, incredibly like strictly religious or anything, but it was like a weekly church thing. It was just like a part of it. And like, you know, I was an altar boy and all this sort of thing. So girls and rock and roll saved your soul is what you're yeah. basically saying. Well, if, if my soul is saved, I don't know. That's, yeah. that's up for debate. <laughs> I have a question about like New Orleans a little bit. It seems like some of your work the restaurants in New Orleans that built around certain chefs that get super popular, like Paul Prudhomme's restaurant. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. Like when they get chains, they have these wacky cartoony menus and sculptures of like a big lobster or a big yeah, pea, yeah. you know. And a giant fiberglass yeah, crawfish, yeah. That kind of reminds me of the aesthetic of your, like your pizza thing and stuff. Was this intentional? I, that's, you're dead on. Like I, that aesthetic is something that like I never really could see it until I moved away to go to school, you know? But then when I would come back, I would go and hang out in the French Quarter or something and walking by all the gift shops that have, like, Zydeco blaring out of them yeah. and have, like, a, like the little uh, alligator heads and just everything is, like, as gaudy and cheap-looking as possible. I think that aesthetic was just something I, I really have loved ever since. And, like, there's this kind of classic sort of attraction repulsion thing Mm. with it as well where I'm really drawn to that stuff I'm like also 
horrified by it a little bit, but whatever horror I feel is the thing that I want to access more, you know? Because I, I feel like the love part of it is what I, I don't investigate. It's just like, I like that kind of grody feeling that it gives me. I mean, the thing that's odd to me about it that makes it not feel like Jeff Koonzy or anything like that is that it's very period specific. It's like a certain kind of colors and ways of using shapes that are like very like late 70s, 80s. Like it's like a certain crop of illustrators and creators invested in that. And then it, you know, you see a little bit of like chilies and stuff, but basically <laughs> it's not, it's not there anymore. Like it's not something, I don't think it new like bloated pizza sculptures get created in exactly the same way. I mean, they're gonna make more of them and they'll never stop probably. But mm -hmm. there's something interesting about how it's not eternal and it's going away. It's not just like schlock. It's like a very specific era, you know? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of it was tied to this particular restaurateur uh, in New Orleans, this guy named Al Copeland, who was the founder of Popeye's Chicken and Biscuits. Oh. And, oh. And, so like, and so like once he started Popeye's, like. Over the years, there was these series of other chains that were uh, attempted that would sort of be around in the same locations, then fail after like five years, then another one would crop up. So it would be like, gosh, I can't remember the names of all of them, but there was Wrap and Roll, which is like around the when wrap sort of sandwiches mm -hmm. became really, uh, I don't know, well, it's hard for me to say how popular they were, but in New Orleans, it was like a sensation. Like everybody was like... You have to be at wrap and roll. And like they had the little kind of like jazz squiggly fiberglass sculptures that were on the exterior of the restaurant. And then later he opened up an oxygen bar in this suburb called Metairie. Every year around Mardi Gras, in the different parades, he would have his speedboats kind of placed in the parades. So they would kind of roll by like in between, you know, various floats or whatever. And he would be on top kind of waving and throwing out beads and doubloons and stuff. And he had, on the interstate, kind of on the way to the airport, there's this building that where he kept all of his, like, like Lamborghinis and speedboats. And so, like, you could drive by and look through the front window and see all of his stuff. So it's kind of, like, I think a lot of that aesthetic is based on, like, this guy's particular, I don't know, he's like the of Medici of, of New Orleans during that period. He would also sponsor like a really extravagant Christmas light thing around Christmas time. And so everybody would go, gotta go see the Copeland Christmas lights. There's like a specific like bastardized Mardi Gras color scheme that mm -hmm. you see it, when you see it outside New Orleans, you're like, oh, there's that. Yeah, yeah. It's like yellow, green, and red, but then there's, but then there's purple. Yeah. And that's the signifier because public purple is pretty rare. And you only yeah. see it in, in America, in French, and <laughs> you only see it in Montreal because people are French there and, and, and New Orleans. And then there's sometimes aqua. And then sometimes there's like a, you know, a Mardi Gras mask, mm -hmm. which come to think of it, that's in one of your pieces too. Yeah, yeah, I, I did several drawings of, the, of masks as well, yeah. Yeah, it's like this sort of completely fantasized version of like the grittiest, grottiest, most primal thing in all of America. I hadn't even thought of that until like just now you're talking about New Orleans and like your work. Yeah. And I guess there's like versions of that in different cities. There's like the Times Square version of that. So Times Square is like primary colors. It's blue, yellow, and red. Like the thing about Mardi Gras is like even when someone's wearing that shirt, it doesn't even have to reference Mardi Gras. If they're wearing those colors outside of there, you're like, oh, it's that Frenchy <laughs> Mardi Gras color scheme. Yes. And it's super 80s. It's weird. Did you go to Mardi Gras? Did, uh... So when I was coming up, my on the day of Mardi Gras, there's like parades all over the city. Sure. And there's like a, in uh, my grandmother's house was our destination. And she lived in this other suburb called Metairie. And they would have like a, a kind of like secondary parades that would go around there. And so. Besides. Yeah. Those yeah. are all the cooler ones, right? <laughs> I mean, I, they were less like extreme. It's more families and less kind of like, less likely to get like beer spilled on you or something. Like I, I just remember being... This was this kind of thing that I did up until probably like 15 or something was probably the last one that I ever went to. And I remember obsessing over the kinds of like free stuff that they would give you from the floats as they passed by. Like they would have like little, little swords that lit up and stuff or, or like uh, these big spears 
given them away? Yeah, they just kind of, well, they, there's like a whole industry of like stores that you can go to where people will buy the supplies if you're part of a Mardi Gras crew. And then uh, like you stock up on all your throws, you buy like beads by the gross and then like these like weird plastic daggers by the dozen and then like little ceramic heads and you know every manner of little plastic trash so as a kid you were just like collecting like i gotta get that skull yeah yeah that it, float hats I, yeah <laughs> definitely i mean do you feel like your sculptures kind of reintroducing like some kind of damaged or organic or visceral feeling to like those sort of commercialized surfaces, those plasticky things. Cause it, I mean, that is like one way of looking at it. Like you got these pastel colors and then they sort of like get damaged or. It's not as direct as that. The things that I'm making now, some of them are sculptures. Some of them are just photographs, but I want them to live in a space that's informed by commercial photography and by a certain kind of like still life photograph that is all about kind of foregrounding desire. There were a few years where I was really fascinated with food photography before I finally got fed up with it. And like- You can definitely see that. And, and like, I loved how that kind of photography had these weird overlaps with pornography, you know, and like the certain like fetishization of certain kind of surfaces, certain kind of like, glistening things, you know. Yeah, there's a woman who wrote a whole, a, a photographer who wrote a whole piece about, I think for Harper's, oh, she yeah. was like a porn photographer, and then she became a food photographer for, for the Food Channel and wrote about that. I also did a piece, like before I'd seen your thing, it was like, it was just boobs and pizza. And I was like, oh. <laughs> right, How did they go together? Basically, I just remember, I, I was doing a portrait of this girl, Brandy Aniston, and I, the second time we hung out, it was at the Breaking Bad porn party. I just remember like, <laughs> <That's ridiculous. laughs> she had a bunch of pizza in her corner of the bar where the party was. And we had had sex. We had worked on a movie together and you know, I'd done a painting. And she had just had all this pizza the whole time and had never offered me a piece, but there was just like a bunch left over and it was like right in front of her. And I just remember like the whole time I was just thinking about like, I associated her very strongly with that. And so like, when I did the portrait, it was like a bunch of paintings of her kind of in squares and then a bunch of pizza close-ups of boobs and pizza and kind of, you know, it all made sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but she was divided into squares? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was done as kind of panels. Okay. For me, painting those things is very similar in the sense of like you're trying to like evoke a very round, glisteny. So I see what you mean. Your sculptures, um... You know, in a weird way, people are trying to get you to, to buy and eat the Burger King, but but your sculptures are, are very extreme. I don't want to be anywhere near them. I kind of don't want to touch them. <laughs> that's a good, that's a fine reaction. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Uh, no, I, well, I guess I started making art in a way that was about, was about fantasy, kind of like as a genre, right? And then later, I guess, as I was kind of getting put through the, the mill of grad school, you know, I realized that I could start to think about fantasy not as a genre and also that like actual real world fantasies are somehow more compelling than you know dragons and and like landscapes with like misty mountaintops back in the distance and hobbits and things and so I think I've been ever since I've made that realization trying to find ways to like access different forms of make different ways to make stuff that um, lets me access fantasy in like a more visceral, visceral way. And a lot of times that's just about like revulsion or finding the thing that twists some part of me more than anything else, you know? Also like moving away from painting for some reason has helped me get more in touch with that by trying to process that stuff through the medium of painting. Like I think it left too much residue of me in the work somehow and i like the idea of like making the thing separate like having it be an object that that has its own ability to stand up either that or a totally digital like flat thing something that doesn't have a corporeal form like for whatever reason it kind of like gets me a little bit out of the way of the work itself I don't know why painting. It got, it got you excited again about. Yeah, I think so, and it just like let me access the perversions in a different way. Because like I think as a painter, like 
there's like certain moves that I'll make as a as a painter that for as me a Sorry. yeah yeah no it's like well I mean for me it's all about kind of like sculpting little imaginary surfaces on a minute scale that's what I do with painting I realize after a while like like the paint isn't what's interesting like I have to find a different way to access those forms and that kind of like style of putting stuff together right it's all about finding ways to like mash up like to make materials hit each other in a way that has either a violence about it or that has some kind of surprise it's definitely seeable in the newer work like there's a substance that is fantasy like it's like an element you know like in the oldest uh -huh. stuff it's like you put together a picture that references fantasy tropes which yeah, is yeah. hard and requires a level of like having studied them enough to like you can like put you know, it's like when, you know, that Mardi Gras palette, it requires like five different colors used in a certain way, and then it references it culturally. But in the new work, there's a substance that it's like almost like some kind of like fantastic Bed Bath & Beyond soap or like a <laughs> lampshade or something. And it's like that substance is, is fantasy. It doesn't refer to a fantasy tropes that from movies. It simply is like, looks like an alien substance. And then you add in other substances to it that make it, fucked up like i have like a cracked lamp over here you know and it's like it should have been a fantastic lamp about <laughs> fantasies it should be leaves of light it should be leaves of light and instead it's just like this bubbling black boil but no i mean i, I definitely see what you mean by taking yourself out of it because you don't have to like once you get the right substance you don't have to reference fantasy you're just like okay this weird orangey stuff is the fantasy and now i'm gonna fuck with it yeah i can see yeah that. and you can feel like you're confronting it directly you know and so you don't have to go through well i guess you go through a different set of like little brain games to get to your understanding of the work you know it's, it doesn't have to get processed through the, yeah, through painting the way you're messing with us you know if, if it was just that organic piece of flesh, I would be like, oh, it's, it's an alien piece, but then there's a pipe coming out of it, mm -hmm. and um, that, that's when the brain games are coming in, like, what? Is it a tool? <laughs> Is it a, an alien lamp? Yeah. But it's also interesting the point at which you start going, wait, why do I care? Like, I, I, it's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a mean way at all. Like, I look at the sculptures, and at one point you, you go, what's going on here? And then you go, oh, it's art. There doesn't have to be anything going on. But then you go, but what's going on? You know, like that back and forth, but it's almost like trying to interpret a dream where it's like, you know it's a dream, so it's bullshit. But on the other hand, it's there and you believe it. And someone made it. Like in the dream, you made it. In your case, a person made it. And so it's like they're on purpose. And so there's something very compelling about that like constantly going back and forth between knowing that you could get out at any time but then be like i don't want it it's weird and it's yellow oh that's nice <laughs> so okay from new orleans you went to florida no i went to baltimore to uh the oh, maryland to institute college of art yeah so i was in in baltimore from i guess 98 to um 2002 when i was a major in a uh, I had a major called uh, General Fine Arts. And you just paint the still life the first year and then yeah. It was just kind of like, you could do whatever. I think I ended up, like my closest friends there were painters. And so I kind of uh, gravitated to that thing. Micah also has a strong illustration department, you know, like, so I don't know if yeah. you were seeing that stuff. Yeah, I saw it a lot. I think it just, like, I never took illustration classes. I mean, I just, the things that I loved were, were um, you know, comics uh, and, and science fiction movies and things like this, but also like painters like Van Eyck and Holbein, you know, it was, it was those Northern Renaissance painters whose, you know, aesthetic overlaps with a lot of that, <laughs> the way that fantasy art comes out looking. Like that super sharpness. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. And like the figures that look kind of embalmed, mm. you know, cause they're just so precise. They're um, separate. Yeah, like there's definitely, like you can see the sort of Northern Renaissance influence, like totally bastardized in like random 80s paperback fantasy covers. It's like. <laughs> yeah, and, and I also loved um, the way that they would use multiple different vanishing points in their paintings. Like it, it, it wasn't like a Piero della Francesco where there's just kind of like this one point that everything is leading to. I love that every object is treated as the important object in the painting. And so then like as a viewer, you can kind of like move around and always have like a privileged point of view. 
in the work. I was making a lot of like shaped paintings when I was at MICA. See, I guess in my junior year there, I went to uh, the Yale Norfolk program. And actually, while I was a student there, Zach, I, you, I think you visited in 2001. And I, I didn't talk to you then, but I saw you. Uh, yeah, I think the, it was the year after I was a teacher there. Yeah, like the, it was uh, Jason Robert Bell was a visitor. And, uh, uh, Jason. I know that guy. And Norm Paris was teaching there. I had Varric with me, a blue-haired girl. I had a show that year, like at Norfolk. That was a big deal for me, just to be like exposed to art students from other places and a different kind of dialogue about about art. So how is it different? Because I mean, I know people who went to Micah and then they went to like Yale and it didn't seem too much of a culture shock for them, but how was it different for you? It was just kind of more and, and people really cared about it a little <laughs> bit more. Like I think Micah is a great school. I definitely learned a lot about painting, but I realized that like everybody was coming to art with like a different set of assumptions. I was teaching for a while in Boston at Mass Art, I, and I re- re- have realized over the years that like every school has like a different kind of dominant aesthetic among the representational painters. Like at Mass Art, there's kind of like this brown kind of painting that happens. At MICA, there was this kind of blue gray repre- representational painting from that happened. From the faculty happens. or coming no, out of the students? From the students. Okay. And it may be the cause of like you know, individual faculty members or something. But like, I guess by being at Norfolk, I guess I was just able to realize like, oh, we're all coming from very different set of assumptions about like, what is the good thing in art? And I, and I kind of liked having my understanding of what art should be destabilized a little bit. Because for a long time, I was just kind of like a, a real hater and didn't <laughs> only kind of liked what I liked. And being around, yeah. being around other people who loved really passionately love stuff that was different from what I loved. Like, I Art know. is like your girlfriend, and you, you say what your girlfriend is like, and then someone else says, my girlfriend's like this. Like, what? It's not my girlfriend. I love, you know. I, I do think is like a thing that art students learn that so many other human beings never learn, which is when people like shit that's totally different than what you like, it's not a scam. You know, yeah. like yeah. it's weird how old <laughs> someone can get and not realize that they're like, oh, people just like that because they're pretentious. It's like there's actually people who just like sit down and like will listen to Philip Glass on purpose and it does something to their body that they like. If you go to art school, you, you have to eventually get to peace with that. You're like people make Ad Reinhardt paintings on purpose and they look at them on purpose because they want to and they like it. You know, it's like people like Brussels sprouts and shit. Maybe culinary students learn that same lesson, but I feel like very few other people do. They're like, if you like shit I don't like, it's just because you're an asshole. Yeah, it's like learning how to either sensitize yourself to new things or uh, or just to sometimes some art is hard and you have to like do work to love it at first. But then again, like a lot of stuff I love, I start out hating at first as well. And then like at some point I'll make a flip flip-flop and then that'll be something that I have to that I is really close to me if I've kind of turned around on it I never learned to be generous about art but I learned to be generous about the people who like it yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so you're at Micah did you go to grad school I I did I went so I went right after I was at Micah I went to grad school at Yale right and I was there from 2002 to 2004 I was really young because I was already like like a, a year younger than most of my classmates when I was in Micah because I think like in kindergarten I got pushed up to like first grade early or something. And so I remember being in grad school at, I wasn't 21 by the time I was there and, and being there like among other, like, you know, people who were, had already like lived real lives and had like content to their the character. Boy character and stuff. I, I felt a little overwhelmed in that regard just because I hadn't done much, you know? And so looking back on it now, sometimes I wonder if I used it correctly, like used my time there, right? Because my tendency was to just sort of hunker down and try to make things that were like strong objects that could withstand criticism virtue of their like technical virtuosity, which I, and I think like in a way that was a mistake because I worked like super slowly when I was there. So I didn't have like, uh, I don't think I got broken down as much as I could have been when I was in school. 
It's not the worst outcome, though. I mean, I literally, yeah. like, somebody interviewed me where they basically just asked me questions about Yale and how it <laughs> destroys human beings or doesn't. Um, so not being broken down might not be the worst of all possible options over oh, there. Sure. But, yeah. I mean, uh, I was also never, like, sort of put on the, the bad list. I feel like sometimes certain students will get... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a real list. You're a good artist now, so whatever you did was probably okay. Thank you. Our other guests that have gone to Yale, people that I've heard have gone to Yale do nothing but sort of badmouth it. I mean... You felt okay about it? The thing is, the people that I was there with, I so many really close friends that came from there, and I was, I was really fortunate to be in a class that was relatively functional. Like, some of my very closest friends and collaborators are people that I was, I was there with. So it's hard to complain. I always would think about how many bananas are in all of the like bodegas in the city. It's got to be like <laughs> a million bananas in the city right now. I eat at least two bananas a day myself. It's a, a lot. <laughs> Did you eat the bananas? You just no, look at them. No, I just think about them. I like to think about them. I mean, that seems to be like what I would expect from this artist. The fruit display is kind of like the wacky living pizza fiberglass sculpture yeah. of New York. You know, like, yeah. we have bananas, we have peppers. It's a shiny display of weird fantasy. Here I am thing. thinking you could just get a banana everywhere in America. You could just go and there's bananas. Is that just a New York thing? No, I, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I think for some reason, like, it really sunk in once I moved here, the realization about, like, just how much stuff is up, how many little independent objects are moved here and there. Like when you see like the pears that are wrapped with paper, yeah. like each pear, that that seems insane to me. Like it's so much work to wrap, get all those pears wrapped. There's a fruit and vegetable place in Queens that they're constantly misting the fruit. So it's all like glisteny all the time. I think yeah. about that often. You would yeah. like it. I, I, I do like that. They do that at my local, one of, one of my local grocery stores. I, I feel like in this neighborhood in particular, like, there's like three stores that I visit just about every day. For whatever reason, like every neighborhood I live in, like the grocery stores become like part of the thing that I do. It's like a weird habit that I don't, I don't know why it happens. What about these wacky ghosts? Oh, the, the wacky ghosts? Yeah, the, the wacky ghost period of your art. I don't know what to say <laughs> about the wacky ghosts. They're kind of just wacky ghosts. The best one is... I think it's on the Instagram is uh, a ghost that's in South Station in Boston, kind of on the commuter platform behind a set of glass doors. Oh, it's like screaming like a like an existential. Yeah, yeah. it's a more photographic ghost. That was a piece that's a, that was actually uh, kind of a important part of the project that that came from. Like, so I was making a lot of those images while I was commuting on the on the bus from New York to Boston to teach. This was a thing that I did for like, I guess from 2010 till just a few months ago is when I stopped, stopped teaching there. I really alienated and bored from that commute, just taking the, the Lucky Star bus back and forth over and over. I needed something to do on the, on the bus and I ended up playing with you know pictures and Photoshop. The earlier images in the, my Instagram feed are just kind of like my little diary of being a commuter. The ghost image has to do with like, th like the pictures look very different than your other work in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. But the, the idea of the ghost, the sheet ghost, where it's like a sheet with two holes in it, is like yeah. one of the things where it's like the maximum distance between what a thing is supposed to represent and feel like and what it is shown visibly like like a ghost is the spirit of the dead yeah. right and our idea of a ghost <laughs> is like a white shoe with two holes and it's funny whenever anyone wears that halloween costume because you're like it's so obviously stupid in some way and like yeah so even though they don't look like your other work in a lot of ways like that idea seems to be like kind of like the distance between a fantasy and the representation Sure. And, and also, like, I think I just kind of love certain sorts of visual puns and, like, when symbols get confused for it literal, how you'd say it. Like, I think I would think about this a lot in, uh, in like, old paintings, just comparing the different ways that different people's, like, Virgin Mary or, or some other 
kind of like godlike coming into the picture. Like sometimes it's like gold leaf. Other times it's just like the presence of a window behind somebody's head. Like, and so I, I like that all those different kinds of language can be collapsed in on top of each other in an image. It's also sort of comforting sometimes when artists have got like a little bit of art fear, like they're afraid to take a risk. They're like, well, everyone knows that a halo is just a circle, so everyone can just understand this. Everyone knows that a ghost looks like the Pac-Man ghost, so it's easy to use symbols. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too, since I'm an art teacher, to my kids that just like square and a triangle, there's the house, because yeah. I'm really afraid of art. <laughs> yeah, you got to start somewhere. And I, and I think like I want to, as much as possible, make work, things that are addressed to everyone, you know, and that aren't like speaking to just a particular, I feel like that's what, what I want art to be somehow, something addressed to everyone. Though I know I probably don't, don't do that yet, but that's, that's a goal. There are artists that even if, if you show them to someone who's not in the art world, that they have a level of accessibility, even if those people wouldn't naturally come across them because they're not in a gallery. Like a lot of your pieces, they say a lot of what they have to say to anyone because they're about they're about how they look. Yeah, they come out of this like thinking about ideas, but in the end, it's like it's visually represented. This is this like fan- fantasy substance, and this is like this weird. I think a lot of like that populism is just getting the public to realize that there isn't a thing they're missing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and- yeah. People so automatically would, would see things and be like, "Well, I don't understand art." And they just immediately like, well, just look at it and tell me what you think. Like every, everything's valid. It's like the difference between, like, you give someone some wine and they go, I don't know anything about wine, or they go, I like this one. If they say, I like this one, they just know everything they need to know. <laughs> there are very few, very few topics in the world that snobbery has still total control of. Like, it, it still makes people doubt their own taste, and art, because of the way it's distributed, has successfully made people not trust their own taste or think they're missing something if they just go, yeah. I don't like that or I do like it. I mean, I think the worst thing you can do with an uninformed point of view maybe is like you don't realize there's something just like that only better. Right, but that's right. about it. That's the only thing there is to know is whether somebody else did the same thing better. Like if you only knew that Oasis was your favorite band and you never knew that the Beatles existed or something. Exactly. Like that would be one of the rare examples of somebody's lack of sophistication about the topic actually mattering. Otherwise, like, if you really like Oasis, then I guess you like Oasis. Yeah, good for you then. <laughs> what about these pencils? I'm going back in time past the viscera. I think I'm going back in time. But, like, mm-hmm. the pencils and the pencil sketches, like, where were? when was that in your career? Was that the, those are actually relatively recently. And those are some of the, some of the most recent paintings. I've come to those, like over the years. So I feel like the general trajectory of the work went from being uh, a kind of like full blending on like a, trying to be like a Steven Spielberg storyteller in every painting to then removing the figures from the work and having like kind of not asking viewers to believe in the consciousness of any particular person inside of thing, And then going more specifically to still life painting. And so there's been like a, kind of emptying out of the work and also moving from uh, artworks that had like a lot of objects to just kind of single objects where the edge of the painting was also the edge of the object. There's been like a gradual emptying out of the stuff that I'm painting because I've always been like a drawer and painter of stuff. For some reason, like those are just the, the kind of tools and kind of situations that ended up being the the last stuff that I've gotten to. You were saying earlier about like referencing fantasy and paintings through like all the tropes, like a dragon mm-hmm. and a mist and stuff. What's interesting to me is these ones that are just a pencil mm-hmm. or some paper, you've emptied out all those fantasy tropes, but it leaves it as almost pure style. And yeah, yet the yeah. style that you've drawn the pencil so completely references like what I think of as like children's library fantasy yeah. <laughs> illustration like exactly. so you've managed to to get again like in a different way like the fantasy is still there just because of the style of the thing and for me that's that's like i don't know if that's something that i just have to come to terms with or if it's like okay fine that's just how i ma- tend to make things it was a weird realization making those works that's like that was me thinking like well that's something that is just going to be probably with me if i'm working with paint. 
So I don't, yeah, I don't really know what, know what, know what it means right. yet. I mean, like Hemingway would say, like, I don't have a style, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone else would disagree with that. <laughs> right. For a lot of people, style includes a bunch of content things that are always there, like themes that are, you know, like there's always mm-hmm. a pizza, you know, like, but if you take all of those things away and you just have the drawing and the drawing style speaks, then that says something about, I don't know, what's in the middle. What about these kind of wacky interiors? That one's called Entry Cat. That was from a series of, of works that I did that were kind of like depictions of artists' uh, live workspaces. And they were kind of like, I think I was spending a lot of time in the house uh, making work and just trying to find a thing that felt, I don't know, close to my experience. And because for whatever reason, I was probably holed up at home for too long, like that, that ended up being my experience. And like paint what you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also wanted to try to find a way to make a drawing that did not have to live in a frame. So those began actually as like me trying to make my own frames for my drawings, but the frames just turned totally bizarre. And then the drawing end, ended up feeling like a weird afterthought. I feel like a lot of those end up looking like like nice contemporary sculptures that go in a ball. Then there's this like goofy drawing kind of like <laughs> polluting it um, at the end. So yeah, that's, those came from just messing around with materials. And that one has uh, some house keys hanging from it just so that it would have some kind of function so that I could hang my keys there. <laughs> it reminds me of like those, again, like this children library thing and they'll be like talking about how books are great because you can use your imagination to go anywhere. <laughs> like there's a certain like color skills, like there's a unicorn always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like a kid with a book and there's clouds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of these like feel like they reference like this world of like imagination that exists only if you don't go outside. True, yeah. For like the sad, sickly kid. <laughs> Almost all the work that I've made, like as far as like painting and drawing, like I always would work from my imagination rather than from specific references. I just always preferred making stuff up. So that probably has something to do with it. And I think for those works too, I was um, thinking about um, those Piranesi drawings of uh, the prisons. They're called the La Carcieri, I think. Yeah. And they're just these elaborate fantasy prisons that he made with like this crazy space and proto MC Escher twists in the space too. If you had to write a press release, you could say <laughs> that, But I mean, if you did, you could say that you're like, or if Deitch had to write one, you could say that like you're playing with or interrogating those tropes of commercial illustration and satirizing them. Sure. But I feel like a lot of them just actually are them or they're super close to just being like, I kind of like that kind of, and I'm just making a more interesting and more weird version of like just that. There's some of them that that come very close to like almost not deconstructing it, just being like, look, you can make a wacky pencil with with like a shading (laughs) that makes like a little purple streak and a little green streak (laughs) and it kind of makes it look more fun. Yeah. There's there's like a simple sort of joy in that style. That way of drawing ended up being just the material that that work is made of, you know? Um, Like if I were a ceramicist, they would, those that was my version of like a blob of clay or something. That makes it even more funny now that you've come to this point of accessing perversion, <laughs> like we've been talking, like, it's the wacky pencil. Yeah. And now I'm accessing I, perversion. I mean, I, I feel like there's, I've been trying to be a pervert the whole time, but like, I think sometimes it just comes through differently. Like sometimes works that I would think were really like disturbing and sad or something, other people would be like, oh, it's funny. You're like, oh, it's what? a pizza. Like, <laughs> What's your definition of a pervert? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, do you ever read that book, uh, Against Nature, by, uh, how do you know, I don't know how to say his name. I think it's Heusman's. Heusman's, by that guy. That guy was a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write this down. <laughs> Just read that book. I mean, the thing about Against Nature is... Desaissant, like the main character, like tries to create a world using his mansion bucks to curate and cut the world so that it's all an artificial construct. Like he chooses his servants specifically for their theatrical effect, and he like 
creates rooms so that it's just like he creates one room so it feels like he's kind of in a submarine like yeah right yeah. like he chooses everything very specifically and he's like a super artificialist and like the whole mardi gras fake food thing is of course about that it's about saying like food isn't like this gross substance that comes out of dirt and then you clean it and then hope it tastes good it's like this beautiful blob of like bright red plaster you're you're cleaning the world up into an aesthetic experience that's happy and accessible and i think if you have deep associations with that then some of your things that reference it i'm looking at these things that are just like it's a picture of a tree it's like blue flowers and, mm-hmm. and, the tr- and the trunk is pink. If you don't have any associations with that, you just think, oh, it's like a funny, happy picture of a tree, you know, in a certain kind of style on black. But if you do have those associations, then you go, oh, isn't that sad? Isn't that something like talk to your soul about how we're not dealing with nature or we're living in our <laughs> heads. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're carrying around this content in your head, and I think some Absolutely. people recognize it or some other things in your work contextualize it and be like oh that's that's sad or introverted or it's dark but without those contexts you'd be like oh when are they going to finish the painting of the purple forest i feel this way about most artists is like i want to understand their work as all together as a whole thing you know rather than specific pieces like I wish there was a way to like defeat chronology and just to be able to see everything <laughs> all at once, you know, but I guess I haven't made everything yet. You think you'll return to painting one day? Oh, well, I'm sure I will at some point. I think I just need to figure out what exactly to do next. I have like a lot of like surfaces ready and shapes cut and paint to, oh, to really? be painted, but a lot of it is just like being distracted by the new thing where the, the new thing ends up kind of overwhelming the practice entirely where I'm like, okay, I need to chase this thing while it's, while it's hot, you know? Do you feel overwhelmed in a good way? Like I have to make this art or do you feel like I can't do it? I think both. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> if, if they, that's possible. I mean, they seem pretty labor intensive, you know, like the sculpture and photo stuff, you know, like there's a lot of technical. It takes a lot of time, but, um, I feel like it's nothing that, like, I, I don't know, like sculpture is a heartbreaking way to live your life. Painting is the same. <laughs> They're just kind of like different problems, you know, like I'm the sort of person who ends up spending years on paintings and being able to move through things quickly is starting to feel more important to me as I, just, I guess just as I get older. Like I used to work on like one painting at a time for like a year or something, and it was just absurd. Oh, no. It would just have so many ideas that would get lost. And I want to try to to address more things and to, like, be able to be fast somehow. It sounds like what you're saying is that, like, the length of time it takes you to finish a piece, you have had several ideas for other pieces during that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then usually by the time I'm done with the piece... It, there's some kind of loathing or like it's shame that's that's the association that I have what's the shame you didn't do it well enough or that something else well I think it's it's that's a complicated thing because like for example like in those pizza paintings like most of those pizzas I would start out trying to just paint like a simple plain pizza with like nothing on it and whenever <laughs> I would mess it up I would put a bit of topping or something to kind of hide it. It's like the pentimenti in an old painting, you know? And so, like, I feel they're just kind of like these records of the problems that accrued. <laughs> so you're it's looking like, at that anchovy? Like, yeah. <laughs> I have, like, a super similar process that I have no guilt yeah. about, which is, like, I did 100 Girls and 100 Octopuses. Like, I had to paint 100 naked girls. And every time the paint dried right, I left it alone. And any place where there was, like, a little crack or it didn't, doesn't look right of the joint. I just put a tattoo or clothing there. <laughs> That's a good solution. <laughs> like that was the the process of creating them. Like I just started with the mistakes and then built the whole piece out of those mistakes, essentially. Like, oh, now she's wearing blue. I kind of didn't see that as a problem. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a problem. It's just sort of like, it's it's something that's like present that like I'm, that's part of my maybe it's the Catholic school or something that because there's a lot of there's a lot of toppings on these pieces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you forgive yourself? Oh yeah, yeah, okay, good. 
I love that you like you feel guilt about having toppings on the pizza. Yeah, <laughs> like that's magic right there. I'm not like the guy in uh, the the priest in the scarlet letter, like sort of flogging my. I'm not flogging myself all the time. I know sometimes artists just have this image in their mind of like it's so perfect and my brain is what I want it to be, and then mm-hmm. nobody ever when they're done. Is that happening with you as well? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I, good for, for sure. <laughs> Another thing I'm trying to do is find ways to not know what it's supposed to look like before it's done, so that mm-hmm. I, so that I don't have to compete with some uh, existing model in my mind. Well, I think that that makes sense because I think that that's that's why I don't feel guilty about those paintings. I, I wasn't yeah. trying to do something. I was I was painting a hundred of them, and so I was like, I did them so fast in the first pass that I didn't have a specific idea for each one. And so because I didn't have an idea that I was failing to achieve, I didn't feel guilty about being like, oh, you know, this one's got a big scar on her face. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and like including it as, as part of the process is essential to <laughs> feeling good about it probably. So how did you end up um, after Yale in New York? I came here just because, uh, well, this is where my friends were coming. It just seemed like I didn't know where else to go. Being close to my friends was seemed like the way to survive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love New Orleans, love my family there, but I had to try to live in New York because I, it's a great place. Like it's an amazing city, and so I was like, well, see what happens. What was your impression when you first got here? Let's see. When I first got here, it was just kind of like sheer terror. I just gotten out of a like a, a five year long relationship, and was really sad and Aww. didn't know what, how I was going to make money or anything. And so I think coming here was like, felt really overwhelming at first. And then, but you know, gradually I, uh, I got a job make, making uh, prototypes for toys. Wow. Like little action figures of like uh, Dora the Explorer figures. Ah. We, so we would make them out of like plasticine, out of clay, and then do a wax version and then make a plastic version. And the plastic version... There would be like this beautiful, like gleaming white uh, version of like a little action figure. And that would get shipped off to China to get mass produced. Some of the figures that we sculpted were later recalled because the paint job that they received in China had lead paint in them. This, this was like a few years back. It was in the news and everything. And I remember seeing like a, a broadcast about it and being like, oh, yeah, I know that, that one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did the arm on that one. <laughs> you didn't feel as guilty as those pizza toppings. Uh, yeah, no, no, for some reason I didn't. You know, I needed a job, um, and I didn't paint them. So, but um, that was that was a great job because I just learned a lot about um, a lot about how to sculpt stuff. And I'd never worked with resins before, or I'd worked very little with clay. And so that seems I, like a fantastic job. Was, Whereas, like most people, like. I was a waiter for two years. Yeah. You know? See, I've never been a waiter. That was one of the other things that I thought that I would, aside from being a priest, I was like, I'll probably be a waiter at some point. Then also, I was like, I'll probably end up in jail at some point. Like, these are... These, Why did you think you would end up in jail? I don't know. Sounds like all three of those just come out of thinking, like, I live in New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. I'll probably be a priest, a waiter, go to jail and play the tuba and be a stripper. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to know how to play the tuba. Also a vampire. <laughs> I had a friend who did that same job, like, but he did it for, he made toys for the wrestling, like those little wrestlers, like those little rubbery oh, wrestlers. Yeah. He said that the people who made them had a really complicated psychologist's description of what they were going for in the good wrestlers and the evil wrestlers. And they were like, you know, these are mostly bought by boys who are in a late polymorphous perverse stage and they're unsure about their sexuality from ages this to this. And so here are signifiers that we don't want on the figures and here are signifiers that we do want. And it was like, he said it was super weird and creepy. The facial features of the good wrestlers had to be sort of feminine but not too feminine the lips had to be done a certain in wrestling the good wrestlers are called the baby face and the bad wrestlers are called the heels baby face yeah wow i want to read those those internal documents i know right it was that's incredible see see we were doing like much more cutesy stuff i I feel like the psychological breakdown was 
I mean, there were kind of like figures that were already popular. So we would just get a few drawings, basically, of like the front view and the side view. And we had to make them to scale to the drawings. I'm sure this that whole job is kind of like becoming very rare because of 3D printing. Like, there's, sure. there's no need for a bunch of like people who just got out of art school to be doing that where you could just, you know, send the file over and have a little plastic one right there. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. When you're making the things that are super influenced by, I mean, I don't know how you showed them or your showing history. Why don't we talk about that? So you were, you moved to New York and you started making toys. And then like, when did you start showing? What were you showing when you started showing? Um, I started showing like really, really pretty quickly. It was like in that first year, I was starting to have some, some shows around at a gallery that's since closed called Bellwether Gallery. Oh, yeah. That was like one of the very early shows at that space. Another gallery that's closed called uh, Jack the Pelican that was in Williamsburg. Yeah. And also another gallery that's also closed called, I think, uh, Oliver Cam 5. B E or five B three? I could never remember. The so basically, you're saying is your bad luck? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 will, I will cause any gallery to close. I, and so it was mostly friends putting me in group shows. And then, like while I was at Yale, I had a visit with Jeffrey Deitch at some point. He would come through the Open Studios. He invited me to be a part of a group show at at his at his space there. Um, on, uh, I guess the first one was at the space on Wooster Street, not on Grand. I started showing with, with him a bit. I think the very first show there that I was in was a group show that was conceived around a new novel by the author J.T. Leroy. Well, J.T. Leroy is sort of like a fictional author who, the fact that it was uh, written by a woman and not sort of like this uh, gender-confused young kid... This was exposed around the time of the James Fry thing. Right. It was a whole thing. Yeah, where everybody was like really con- consumed with discussion of like literary authenticity or something. That opening had like this reading of the works by like uh, like uh, Lou Reed read it, read from the J.T. Leroy novel at the thing, and I was like so amazed to, to be like in people that I never would have been exposed to. It was really great in that in that regard. On the other hand, like. It was like just a, a gallery that was operating at a scale that was like very different from what I knew before that, you know, like I hadn't ever worked really with a gallery before and was still, you know, like a, a knucklehead kid who was like, what, do, why am I doing this? And like, where, where is this art supposed to go? And that's something that like, it took me a long time to start asking myself those questions. And I don't know if I still have an answer to, to that either. <laughs> and I was working with that gallery till it closed when, when uh, Jeffrey Deitch went to go run uh, the MoCA in, uh, in L.A. And, then, and since then, I, and that was what, like probably like 2008, I think that was, when that happened. So that was in the midst of the financial crisis. I remember talking with people being like, what are we going to do? Like, do you, like, are we going to have to, like, go, like, live in a cabin? Like, should we get guns? Like, I just remember, like, these really <laughs> crazy conversations when everybody was so, like, taken for granted this world where you can, like, survive by selling drawing, which was great. You know, I, I, I liked it. The realization that that was, that was going to change a lot. I, I just remember that being a Or maybe just go be plumbers or yeah, firefighters. Have a real job. It was a little bit after that that, um, that I ended up... Uh, in teaching at uh, in Boston, presented by a gallery or anything. It's I'm not like uh, not opposed to it. I, I guess it's something that like I you know it's sort of a matter of being like having the right situation kind of happen. When you're showing at different stages, like some of your work is in isolation without the context of the other work. Like we were saying before, it just like looks like it's work in the style of that kind of commercial illustration. Yeah. Did you ever like have shows or moments where you were like thought people might only see that and not get that you were like a sophisticated smart guy? Oh sure. Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, that that definitely happened. I mean, I always kind of knew that was a thing just about the way that like that was something weird about the work is that it looked like that. Like when I was in grad school actually, like Tim Griffin the the art form editor 
with the really uh, sharp teeth. Apparently. <laughs> like, if you've ever met him, he has, like, super sharp teeth. It's weird. Like, pointy? Yeah, like, the whole art world's, like, this, like, this Kiefer Sutherland-looking guy with super sharp teeth. It's, like, it all depends on him. It's weird. Yeah, he, he, he came uh, through my studio for a studio visit when I was there, and he was like, this looks like it would be, like, in some kind of, like, skateboard shop or, like, some kind of, <laughs> like, some kind of head shop. And that was present in, like, you know, 80% of my critiques while I was a student there. And it's something I just kind of got got used to hearing. And, like, so, yeah, that, that seemed like a definite possibility. Actually, at Deitch Projects, a lot of the work that he would show would be um, super art-worldy art, and, but also then other times there was work that was just straight out of that world uh, and out of some various subculture, like, something that he did all the time. And I, and I remember feeling at some point kind of like, like, what am I in this equation, you know, and, and not knowing for, for sure. I don't think like I allied myself and I don't with any kind of particular high or low thing, just because that's like a paradigm that it doesn't sort of work for me. Almost everyone that we interview that's like relatively young on We Eat Art, like even like, Gary Panter, they're negotiating an unnegotiated of like, why are we not in the skate shop? You know, like what keeps you off the album cover and like, do you care? (laughs) And like, there's clearly a space like in the New York art world for like making fun of that. Like if you make like a really big like Pegasus painting, like going over a wave and you make it, you know, 90 feet tall, then you're making fun of that and it's definitely okay. But the person will definitely buy it and be like, this is a kind of awesome painting of a Pegasus jumping over a wave. <laughs> like, there's definitely a space for that. And there's, like, also definitely a different space for, like, somebody like R. Crumb, who, like, has a hardworking back catalog in the commercial illustration that survived the test of time and so is now kind of grandfathered into becoming a real artist. But yeah. then there's so many people in between where it's, like, like, it speaks to the content of both in a lot of ways. Whereas your work, it doesn't teach little children to read. You know, like, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it wouldn't ever be, like, a really good illustration for, like, a book about dragons. But then once in a while, you like, like, the keyboard, or even the pizzas, like, some of them, you're just like, oh, that's, like, if I had a pizza restaurant, I might just buy one and hang it on the wall. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> it does the function of those things. And, and it does it unironically almost, or I don't know if it does it unironically. Or I'm fine with irony, and I love irony. I think the thing I've tried to avoid is uh, cynicism. If I can be ironic without cynicism, that, that's my goal. What's the difference to you? Uh, I feel like irony is recognizing some kind of friction or disagreement between your experience and language, and cynicism is kind of like deploying that difference to get something, to increase your power somehow. Yeah, like a person could be ironic about themselves, and it's not, it's just kind of self-aware and, and cute, but they can still be themselves. Whereas yeah. if they're cynical about themselves, that's like a scary, dark place to be. And cynicism is just real negative. That's true. And that's the worst. It's true, gosh darn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also all for negativity, like, and... I want to burn it down as much as anyone. But I also, you know, you also have to find ways to build something. Cynicism is, is charming negativity. Yeah, but you're like the super positive guy. I guess. Yeah. You teach children about art all day. Well, I can say I don't like cynicism. You, you, struck, you struck something with me. I think what you're talking about is a cynicism about the thing you decided to put in front of the audience. Yeah. If you put a lavender couch in front of the audience and you are cynical about that, then it's basically saying you're making fun of the audience for even giving a shit about the lavender couch, and you're not really invested in the lavender couch, whereas you're merely ironic about the lavender couch. People go, what'd you put in your show? And you're like, oh, it's a big fucking lavender couch. It's awesome. And you're being <laughs> ironic about it, but you still think it's awesome. You you realize the how it sounds, but at the same time, you yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. That's different than cynicism, which is like, you know what people will pay money for? being told they're idiots <laughs> you know like that's cynical and there's a definitely a joy in the surfaces in what you're doing oh for sure yeah and that's not cynical joy this has been lovely 
Cool. It was really good to talk to you, Ted. See Zach. I love I love your stuff. Well, thank you so much. It's so nice of you to say. Love your stuff too. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest Ted Minio, who is currently participating in Fan Mail, a series of low-cost risograph editions that can be purchased and mailed to the recipient of one's choice for two dollars. It's organized by Adam Schechter and Matt Neff. Info at fanmailxo.com. That's F-A-N-M-A-I-L-X-O.com. You can always find Ted Minio on Instagram and Twitter at Ted Minio. Also, I have more of my artwork in my Tumblr at the pen or just Google John Minius. And Zach has a new book with Shana Maivo. Next podcast, we'll be talking to Molly Crabapple. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Okay, I'm going to get a blanket. I'll be back in a second.